0: Well, hey there. Welcome to Job with Julie. I'm your host, Julie Slattery. This podcast is a listener-supported outreach of Authentic Intimacy, a ministry dedicated to helping people make sense of God and sexuality. Now, have you ever paused and really thought about some of the stories or narratives that drive your life? You know, our narratives provide the lens through which we see people and make sense of what happens to us. We believe narratives about ourselves, about other people, about the world, about God, and these narratives heavily influence the choices we make and the people we actually become. And that's gonna be the subject of my conversation today with Dr. Jennifer Holberg. Jennifer is a professor of English and general studies at Calvin University, and she's the author of the book, Nourishing Narratives, The Power of Story to Shape Our Faith. As you'll hear Jennifer say, The stories we believe, they normalize issues and concepts, stories teach us things, and stories shape us. So intentionally leaning into understanding and examining the stories we tell ourselves is really important. And as a single woman, Jennifer has a lot to say about the narratives that she grew up with around marriage, family, and singleness, particularly within the church, and the way those play out. So this is definitely an episode everyone needs to lean into. So grab your coffee, get comfy, and let's listen to my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Holberg. Well, Jennifer, I am so glad to have this opportunity to talk to you about some of the concepts behind your book, Nourishing Narratives, which is a great title. Thank you. And uh, as we'll get into it, I'll explain a little bit why this idea of narratives is so important to me and why I feel like it's like... A central thing to what we do on this podcast. But let me just start by kind of summarizing something that you say in your book, and then I'd love for you to respond to it. A lot of the book is really challenging us to look not just at our theology, but to look at the narratives that inform even how we see God. And you kind of make the case throughout the book that we have a tendency to oversimplify biblical narratives like yeah. not just like stories and we can talk about specific sure. stories but the meta narratives of mm-hmm. scripture. So I'd love to know like when did you first even get that idea that that narratives matter. Yeah,
1: thanks Julie. It's such a pleasure to be with you today looking forward to this conversation. Uh you know, I talk in the book about being a very bookish child but also someone who was very much raised in church and so those stories were always really important to me and I I think it's important that from the time I was a young child, that story didn't mean not true Mm -hmm. that the Bible is full of stories. Yes, but there are stories that, that really have. So there's not facts and stories is, I guess what I'm saying, but then just starting to observe the way people lived in the world and, sort of the levels of contentment and happiness that so often was about how they were responding to a situation. So I moved a lot. I'm a a military kid. Um, So I moved nine times. And there's lots of different stories you can tell about that. But in my own family, we were always, my parents spent a lot of time always thinking about the next place we were going and what the cool things were about it and the history of that place and who we were going to get to meet and what we're going to get to do less of, it was always a looking forward to and uh, what else do we get to do rather than uh, narratives of loss. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be, um, shouldn't acknowledge that too, but I do think you start to think about the ways in which, the story that you're telling yourself whether that's in your family or in your personal life or in your church really does start to shape the way you respond to things and i started to realize mm-hmm. there were people who you know responded differently than maybe my own family or thought about faith differently and and so i think it's been just been a slow thing over the course of my life to think about oh, that's interesting. That person needs to see themselves as this. Or, you know, they'll say, oh, but I was always the pretty one. And how that that mm-hmm. idea which is probably factually true, then shapes the way they think about almost everything. And so I think as I sort of moved into my own career, I didn't go to college necessarily thinking I was going to be an English professor, but just the way in which story is functioning on all these different levels politically. And I mean, I think every level, and as you say, I think for us as people of faith, That the stories that we tell ourselves as faithful people, whether about our own condition or the condition of God, doesn't always match, I think, what scripture gives us or the complexity Mm -hmm. of scripture. And so I guess I'd start there is just to say it's been a slow, (laughs) a slow burn, but I think it's always sort of been there in the sense that people are really using stories to get themselves through their lives. So then we need to be paying attention to them.
0: Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more, you know, even from a clinical psychology perspective, when you're Mm -hmm. working with people and helping them address things in their life, often they come wanting to address the facts first, Mm -hmm. or their experience of I feel anxious, or my spouse Mm -hmm. and I hate each other, you know, and they're like, okay, deal with the problem. But you really can't deal with or even identify the problem until you get to that narrative level of the stories we tell ourselves about our worth and about our world and about relationship and about whether or not we can trust. And so, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm tracking. Yeah. And, and don't you think that. it's
1: true that people really, I mean, I say in the book that the subtitle of the book is quite deliberate in the sense that the power of story to shape our faith, but shape is really a sort of neutral word there in that it can be both positive and a way of sort of helping you transform to imagine something else, but also to misshape. And I think so many of our stories about ourselves, I'm not enough. If I were just this, someone would love me when I get to this stage, then I'll have made it. And I think what we find the older we get, and I say this is a deeply middle-aged person, but I think part of the reason people have midlife crises is you start to realize, well, I I got to that. Yeah. And the things that are still not working for me are still not working, but also like, what are the stories that are really damaging to me? I mean, I think this is what people do in therapy, right? Is they, mm-hmm. they start to unpack these things where stories that they've really come to believe about themselves from childhood on, they just can't break out of it, or they're in an abusive relationship and they can't quite think about, imagine that there could be anything different. Yeah. Yeah. Or they've imagined that this partner will change. And of course, they're never going to. And so I think stories can really trap us, too. And I think there's lots of toxic narratives that then inhabit our lives on all kinds of levels that are really hard to break out of because Mm -hmm. they're the way we imagine the world.
0: That's so true. And a lot of your focus on this book is really challenging us to look at the stories we've grown up believing about God. And of course, what we believe about God integrates into what we believe about ourselves. So these are not isolated categories. But I think, um, you know, often in theological circles or we look at different denominations, we're looking at theology and we're looking at, you know, how do you interpret this passage in Timothy or how do you interpret this passage in Colossians? And so we're, we're looking at the nuance of theology, but we're not looking at the undergirding stories of that.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: I don't even remember hearing much at all. Like I grew up in the church and went to Christian college and things like that. But it was never about story. It was about text. Mm -hmm. And of course, text is important. It helps define the story and put parameters around the story. But in your experience teaching at a Christian university for the last 25 years, to what extent do you encounter kids that grow up in church, grow up in Christian homes, and maybe have uh, maybe the correct theology or maybe not, but have given no thought to the narratives they believe about God?
1: Right. I think that's really true. And I think you know some traditions, probably my own, the Reformed tradition, we tend to think right thinking Mm -hmm. is the only thing we need to do. And if we get all our Thought straight and all our theology, and um, have done all the all of the things we need to do. And I think you know you you used the phrase meta before, and I yeah. think it's less about um, sort of rules and more about tools. So as we look at a passage you know, what is the hermeneutical framework? What's the interpretive framework that we're using there to get to that rule? Mm -hmm. And how is it really part of the larger story of God that you're trying to tell? So, yes, this one verse might read a certain way. But if you think about, but I believe in a God who is generous and a God who is loving and a God who is just and a God like all of the attributes of God, of which there are many, how we we have to have a more complex hermeneutic and so i think yeah when students come even at a christian college and are struggling with their faith it's often because it's a sort of inflexible series of rules and shoulds Instead of, uh, I think, of a God who's capacious and, uh, you know, Augustine says in On Christian Teaching that the Holy Spirit is so amazing that as the scripture was interpreted, it anticipate the, the Holy Spirit anticipated every reading that was to come. Hmm. And so um, aligns the scripture with one another that if it's a true reading and not all readings are true, obviously, but if it's a true reading, it will work in the scripture, and yeah. that as we apply scripture to scripture and those kind of hermeneutics that it works but i do think as people are thinking about like deconstruction or things a lot of what i what i see with that is No, it's just pushing against a rigid way of reading the Bible that doesn't say that the Bible is deeply like there are so many deeply problematic stories. It describes human behavior of every variety and really lots of bad stuff. Yeah, Yeah. I just think, you know, if we would just free ourselves to a God of a big story And a God that like the Bible is just full of every time I read the Bible, I'm always coming across somebody that I'm like, oh, I didn't remember that person or that's a cool story. Or I hear a story again in church or something and I think, oh, that's such an interesting take on that. Yeah, that's true as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not infinite meanings, but it's certainly so many that God lets us, allows us to bring. And I just think that's what God wants from us is he wants that sort of mosaic, right, of all the little tiny pieces that we get to look at. Cool.
0: Yeah, it really is. And we can never exhaust it. Right. I had a podcast interview about a year ago with a guy named Marty Solomon, who Mm. has been trained by rabbis. He's a Christian But Jewish and has really done a lot of study in terms of how Jewish thinking impacted how the Bible was written and how it really was narrative. And we're always Mm -hmm. particularly looking at the Old Testament in terms of facts and arguing facts Mm -hmm. instead of entering into the narrative. And one of the things that he challenges us to do in reading, particularly story in the Bible, is to sit back and say, okay, what's wrong with this story? Mm -hmm. And often what God is communicating is the angst of what's wrong here. Like, you know, for example, what's wrong with Isaac choosing his son to have a favorite? You know, it's like that, you know, we just read it like that's normal that that Isaac would have a favorite and choose Joseph. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's messed up if you really think about it. So, <laughs>
1: yeah. And so much of the Bible is messed up. It is like almost all the stories like that's why they get in. Right. Right. Yeah. It's because someone messed up and God had to step in. Right. Like, that's our story. But I think you're also right about the idea. And I, I this is one of the little mantras I have for my own students is narrative normalizes. Hmm. So one of our problems, I think, is If we do normalize it as like, well, of course, Isaac had a favorite. You're like, no, no, no. Uh -uh." Like, that's one we have to critique. Yes. But I think one of the reasons narrative is powerful is because the more times you hear a story, the more normal it seems. And then all of a sudden you think, oh, well, and then you stop critiquing it. Yeah. Or you just decide that's the way the world is. So, I mean, I think about something like smoking. It's fascinating that our laws have never changed on smoking. It's still legal, right? But in the 1940s, 50s, you watched a movie and the romantic lead is like, like lighting up and like, oh, darling, can I light your cigarette? (laughs) Right. And it's super like sexy and whatever. And now if you say to students, like, if you see someone smoking a film, what are they? They always say the villain. Yeah. Right. Or they're sort of lower class and like sort of trashy. Mm -hmm. But there's no kind of allure to it any longer. And that's all story. That's Mm -hmm. movies changing the way we think about smoking, right? Mm -hmm. And I just think there's so many ways in which, like, we get these narratives that are culturally something that seems okay. And once you've seen that story enough times, it starts to be hard to, like, even think it's something to be critiqued right. or to be engaged with. It's just the water we swim in, right?
0: Yeah, what I'd like to do is now apply that concept to the topics that we deal with here on Java With Julie, particularly we can talk about sexuality or narratives of sexuality, but then also get into our narratives about marriage and singleness, which mm-hmm. you've written about and I know is something on your heart. But yeah, one of the things, and I've been doing this particular work for the last dozen years, And one of the things that I've learned over that period of time, I started out probably like every Christian does, looking at the passages that say what to do and not do related to sexuality. But I think somewhere in my own growth, I began to sit back and say, why does any of this matter? Like, why does God care so much about sexuality? Why is it in the Old Testament, the New Testament? If we can't get at the why... Then at the very best, we kind of just resolve ourselves to, well, that's what God said. We've got to obey him. But it distances us from his heart. And we live in a culture today. And I know on a university campus, probably the vast majority of your students are wrestling with the goodness of God and biblical sexuality because the narrative that they've grown up with on sexuality and culture is so out of place with the rules they read about in the scripture. Um, So I wonder if that's something you've even thought about at all in terms of how Mm -hmm. this applies to the stories we tell ourselves about sexuality.
1: I think one of the things that's interesting is the ways in which the church has tried to promote different narratives too. I think sometimes when we see something that I would call kind of the idolatry of the family, Mm -hmm. I think that comes out of a place though where The church is trying to provide something that is a counter. Right. But I think what happens is that we've also created some narratives that aren't as healthy as they could be. But I also think we've internalized some things that are perhaps about kind of sentimentality. And so things like what I see in a lot of Christian students is this kind of narrative of virtue is rewarded. Yeah, very much. uh, I teach the 19th century novel, 18th century novels, too. And they love that. Right. So if I'm just if I follow the rules, this goes back to your point about rules earlier. If I just follow the rules, I'm not choosing this because I necessarily think it's the right thing. Beyond the sense that it's what I've been taught, but it, it's not because it's a kind of a robust moral choice. It's because Mr. Darcy is coming. Yeah. And if I can sort of be performative and um, do the right things, and my virtue will be rewarded. Mm-hmm. And he, he or she is coming probably by the time I'm 22. I have a friend who says there's one version of Christian education that's Noah's Ark, right? You enter in and your parents hope you come out two by two. <laughs> uh, and so I, I think there's this um, there's this sensibility, right? We still have a lot of Christian campuses, the ring by spring, the, yep. this pressure to try to be chaste and to try to follow rules, but because it's not going to be too long that I mm-hmm. have to do it and I'm going to get rewarded, right? And I just think that's not that's such a damaging narrative because then you get to be 25, 30, 40, 55. And if you look at a lot of, um, there's a period of my life that I actually wrote an article on this. And so then I was reading a lot of material. And there's so much Christian singles literature, especially written by people in maybe their 30s, 40s, where they're very discontented, mm-hmm. because they follow the virtue is rewarded narrative. Mm-hmm. And it was like, wait, I thought I was virtuous. And maybe even they were, right? Yeah. They did the right things, but they weren't rewarded. So then that changes their view of God because, well, God didn't reward me and I did all the things. Yeah. And that to me is a narrative we don't talk enough about, right. this, this virtuous rewarded idea that it'll be short-lived, but also Darcy's coming and just keep doing it because God will reward you, as opposed to wait, why is my current condition as a single? Why is that not a reward? Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, it's a punishment. Or I've had people say to me, it's tragic you're not married. Mm -hmm. Or it was a tragedy you're not married. And I'm like, oh, honey, that's the wrong genre. Right. Right? I mean, that tells you already what that person who's trying to say a nice thing. Like, I acknowledge that. But it really starts to, you start to see that frame of what genre they think my life is, or, oh, it's such a pity. You have to sit by yourself in church. Well, not
0: really. (laughs) I actually sort of like that. I can pay attention, you know. Um, Yeah. And what you've described is what we talk about here at Authentic Intimacy as the purity narrative. uh Right. And, you know, when I teach on this, one of the things I say is that it's not that there aren't aspects of truth in it, but it's limiting the narrative to just one piece of truth. So true. And as you describe the impact of singles, I also see it in terms of people who got married and then Mm -hmm. marriage is a disaster. And so if this is what Mr. Darcy turns out to be, like, what did I serve God for? Exactly. Or just, you know, like one of the things that I have learned is a narrative is only powerful if you see your own narrative in it. That's right, and so we—I'm uh, sure you have students, for example, that are struggling with same-sex desire, and you have many students who are coming in with sexual trauma, and it's like that narrative doesn't even give voice to their experience, right. which makes them feel like God has nothing to say to me about. No, that's
1: exactly right. And if every one of the things you asked me earlier about when when this first kind of became clear to me, the the roots of my own dissertation were in a one of my favorite, in fact, probably my favorite professor in college. But I took um, a women's literature class with her. And we were reading all these classic texts. And I was so annoyed, because at the end of every text, or not everyone, but quite a few of them, when they came to some kind of consciousness or sense of autonomy, they either had to die, Mm. or go crazy. (laughs) Or and I thought, really, is this the only narratives that are available to women? Yeah. But I think you can really take that out to are these what are the narratives that are available to men and to all of us as we're thinking and as you say it's very limited especially if there isn't a story for you that you can see or but also you know, people are are rarely perfect in the world. And these kind of these purity narratives that sometimes students tell me that they learned in their youth group or something, I find sort of horrifying Mm -hmm. in the way in which they are sort of, it's the unforgivable sin. And I'm like, you know, that's not the one in the New Testament, right? There are ways in which, you know, there are things that we do that God forgives.
0: Yeah. At Authentic Intimacy, we love to journey with you as you discover what God's word says and how to apply that to your life. And that's why we have books, courses, blogs, webinars, and conferences, all designed to help you make sense of God's word, find community, and journey into what God has for you. To explore more of our resources, head to the link in our show notes. And if you want to find out more about becoming a member, go to AuthenticNMC.com slash member. All right, back to my conversation with Jennifer Holberg. Boy, Jennifer, that's a very important point. Like every Christian narrative has to fall under the greater narrative of the gospel. And the gospel doesn't divide us into the sexually pure and the messed up. You know, it says, hey, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And and our purity comes through trusting in the righteousness of Christ. And he really makes us new creations. And... And in my experience, most people, most even devoted Christians don't know how to integrate the gospel narrative into their sexual journey. It feels like two very separate things.
1: Right, right. And I think we we feel, I mean, I'm sure you see this a lot in your own work, but the sort of shame that we feel, it's as if, it's sort of like, this is probably maybe a funny example, but I always find it like really a little bit hilarious that students in class don't ever think, for some reason, you're standing up in the front and they don't think you can see them. Like, you know, they're messing on their phone or they're, and they're usually trying to be surreptitious or whatever. But I'm like, dude, I can see you you know, I can see you. Well, how much more so God, right? And I think, you know, this idea that God would be surprised at anything we do, especially like read the Bible, we anything we've done, someone in the Bible has has done it. And we need to think about that. Mm -hmm. I think people sometimes think, you know, right now, I'm trashy, and then I get to be in heaven. No, we actually believe that we're eternal, and eternality starts now. Mm -hmm. And right now, I'm beloved, I'm a beloved jewel. Now, I'm a bunch of other junky stuff too, but that's what sanctification is for, Right. that eventually my immortal diamondness is what shines, but I'm already that too. Mm-hmm. And if we could think about that as God loves you that much, and then wouldn't you want to do the things, you know, to just shine up that diamond and start to let God get rid of that other junk, you know? So. Yeah,
0: it's a story that compels us, and it's not just a list of rules, that we want to abide by. So
1: don't you think shoulds, I mean, in any area of our life, I think shoulds are always sort of soul destroying. Nobody wants to do shoulds right now. That's not to say, you know, I believe in duty and all of that sort of thing, probably from my military childhood, but I just think, you know, want to um, desire to, because I just think shoulds at some point, you just don't want to anymore.
0: Well, I I Um, think, I think that's key right there is at some point, and it's all about maturity because, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got a little kid or a baby Christian, we do need parameters. This yeah. is what God would have you do. But if you never get past that and you never begin to ask the question, why don't I want to do that anyway? Like, why am I compelled mm-hmm. by a should instead of I have a greater love for God than I do my sin or I- I've right. come to the point where I've seen the destructiveness of my flesh like, I just think by keeping Christian Christianity and the Bible so simplistic, we're not challenging one another to grow beyond the shoulds.
1: I think that's exactly right. And I think that we need to be thinking, and I think partly it's why we listen to other people's stories and testimony and thing is to understand how they moved through that or like, oh, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, yeah. That's really hopeful. I just think that a simplistic story – is just a way to make God smaller.
0: Yeah. And when
1: we try to make God smaller, I think the reason for that typically is because we want to have our own control,
0: mm-hmm. you know?
1: And I think that's related to earlier where we were talking about if we just can get our, you know, if we just have all the rules down or we just have, ah, oh, we have our checklist somehow. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I got it. I got it. Mm-hmm. And I think in that choice idea, it's like, Oh, but I'll make these choices and therefore I'll have control. And I think what you learn the older you live is that like, how little choice you really, you really
0: have. We've talked a little bit about how in these things, maybe some church tradition has impacted our narratives, but I think you're also hitting on how culture has impacted our narratives, both with yep. romance and vocation, you know, just even thinking about romance, I, I go back to that story you said about smoking and how the yeah. story of smoking has changed. Just think about how the story of sexuality has changed. If you watch media from the 1950s to now, the overarching story is that you can't be a fulfilled human being if you don't find your soulmate or if you don't have romantic attachment and affection. And I feel like instead of challenging that narrative the church has just tried to sanctify it. Like, yeah, it's double just, down. Yeah.
1: Like you're nobody if somebody doesn't love you. Right. Right. Yes. And also you're not really fully adult. Yes. Um, I think that's another, I mean, the way that singles, whatever their sexual orientation are infantilized. And I would actually argue that the church is pretty unsuccessful in its conversations about LGBTQ mm-hmm. issues yeah. because they're very unsuccessful with straight singles too. Yeah. Right. And so you're already bad over here. Right. So you've sort of said, Oh, unless you're you know, marriage is the is the only thing that God wants for you and I'm like, That's not actually what the Bible says. Right. Jesus himself turns out <laughs> <laughs> but i digress but i also think there's lots of other narratives too like you're not a grown up you probably mm-hmm. have all kinds of free time all kinds of things you uh, and i think the other thing is is and this goes back to the point you've made several times it's the complexity of singleness too mm-hmm. so often when i look at writings on singleness or listen to people you know they have one single in mind But there's lots of different ways that people are single. Right. And there's lots of people like I'm quite contented. But, you know, I have close friends who still in their 50s would love to be married Mm -hmm. and they still are lonely. And they're but I think when we talk about it, we're always like, well, let's talk about the single problem. But, you know, like married people, we have a multitude of them and we experience life in a lot of different ways. But when we're not fully ever part of the church or we're sort of your pity party, that's actually kind of hard.
0: Yeah. And that could lend itself into, we have the wrong narrative about family and about spiritual family. Like when you read the scripture, we're not at all working with that narrative in the American church. And, you know, Jennifer, that's why I think that this is such an important conversation. And I agree with you about the LGBT, because if we just take the culture's story of sexuality and apply it to heterosexual married Christians and say, okay, keep sex within marriage. And we don't challenge the underlying assumptions of, of sexual fulfillment, romantic fulfillment is how you become a mature, healthy human being. Mm -hmm. We have nothing to say to those who are struggling with anything on the LGBT spectrum.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's why, you know, you have, have people then falling into these very sentimental kinds of you know, Hallmark Hall of Fame, or mm-hmm. what, and that's not marriage either, no. right? But also, like, yeah, do you have a do you have any kind of stories where that's not the point of the book, yeah. right? I mean, there's a there was a film that was made. I don't know. I I need to look this up, but it was Jennifer Aniston in kind of maybe early 2000s and Vince Vaughn, and it was called The Breakup.
0: Yeah,
1: and in the film, at the beginning of the movie, they break up. And then through the movie, he does all the things that typical romantic comedy hero or heroes have to do. You know, he tries harder and he transforms himself and he does all the things. But at the end of the movie, they don't get back together. Mm-hmm. And she decides to like she's going to go to Europe and take a trip and stuff. And the end of the movie is her like walking away. It was such an unsuccessful movie, even though in real life it would be like, yeah. They were never supposed to be together. And yeah, he's better. But, but I mean, I just think uh, romantic comedies, uh, you know, we spend, uh, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit of time in my classes on these because we start to break them down, right? Like the meet cute, but they typically don't like each other. But then what's the message to men? Try harder. No, Mm. in real life, it's called stalking, (laughs) right? We would never, like, if you actually took, like, romantic comedies that are very popular and you actually did the real things in life, some of those would be, like, criminal. Mm. Or we'd say, we don't, you know, but men then get these messages out of romantic comedy that, oh, her no doesn't mean no. Mm -hmm. Her no means try harder. Yeah. And if you just try a few more times, she really does like you. No! No! (laughs) that's terrible or you know put up with all uh, terrible shenanigans and in real life i always say to students if you would have told your friend in this movie to break up with them you like this is not a narrative you should be embracing or the other narrative is you know the sort of hate watching of the bachelor or shows like that and they're like well we don't really believe that but those shows are so fun Mm -hmm. well in what way though yeah and again if narrative normalizes At what point is this kind of harem activity, like, if you actually describe The Bachelor in a kind of just uh, objective way, it's like, you know, one woman gets to pick from 52 men, like, that doesn't sound like, that sounds horrible. It's sick. And she's going to like, you know, there's going to be manipulation every week. And, like, we would think that that just sounds awful. And yet... It's a popular show. It's had, you know, multiple seasons. So I say to my students, like, you say you believe one thing, but you spend your time in Im- imbibing a narrative that's really normalizing certain kinds of things. And that's whether it's kind of these lady in Vermont with her bookstore and the cute guy comes by all of these are not actually true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so how do we move to something that's truer? And where do we find those? And I think you mentioned earlier, like, how does the church help us find them? And right now, I don't think they're doing a great job. Yeah, they're either giving me sort of sappy, Or we have these really over-sexualized narratives out of our culture that aren't healthy either. Mm -hmm. Um, But neither of them are good.
0: Yeah. Um, And that's sort of the space that we find ourselves in on this podcast is, you know, explaining the complexity of Mm -hmm. the narrative of singleness, sexuality, marriage in a way that people can say, yeah, that's my story. And that's where God is in the midst of it. And when I train Christian leaders on this, you know the number one complaint which is very valid is it's so hard to teach. Yes. It's way easier to teach a sanitized version of God. Yeah. than to wrestle with the complexity of even the stories we see in scripture, you know, like we always want to identify with the hero. But what if right. you're what if you're Rahab? What if you're Tamar, you know, uh yeah. David's daughter who gets raped and lives in shame. Like we don't ask those questions, but that's where a lot of people are walking. And we need to invite that that journey into God is still God. So where is he?
1: Right. And isn't it interesting that the first time God is named in Genesis is by Hagar, mm-hmm. who says, You're the God who sees. Yeah. And I think if we again that back to that what we were talking about earlier, God sees us in our, you know, again, my hero Flannery O'Connor, right? She says the great scandal of the gospel is that God sees us as we are and still wants to die for us. Amen. Right? Mm. Still loves us enough. And so again, I think the shame that we feel, the regret we feel, the all of the things, God sees that. And God says, I love you anyway. But yes, I think you're right. I mean, one of my example to my students is I don't understand why anyone puts Noah's Ark on the wall of their baby's room like that story is like, like, that's only a good story if you're on the boat. Mm, Yes, like most people in that story were not on the boat. Yeah. And what would that what was that like? You know, Mm -hmm. what does that feel like? Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's so many I mean, I talk in the book about the woman with the issue of blood, Mm -hmm. and how it's someone who had to have a hysterectomy eventually, right? Like that story really spoke to me, like how desperate you would be, when your society saw you as untouchable. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't it cool that Rahab is in the bloodline of Christ? Like she's one of his great, great, great grandmothers. Mm -hmm. Like not only does to save her, but to integrate her into the story. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah.
0: Well, Jennifer, I feel like you and I could probably talk for hours. We (laughs) could. We done already? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, (laughs) We're running out of time. And I, again, feel like, man, I wish we could just, have a, have a long lunch and, and dive into yes. this more, but boy, I have really enjoyed this conversation. Well, come and, to Grand Rapids. <laughs> yes. It's not too far away. So maybe I'll have to do that, yeah. but um, yeah,
1: well, and I do run the festival of faith and writing and that'll be this year, April 11th through the 13th, 2024. So it's a great place to hear lots of different stories. We've been running over 30 years, so yeah. people should, uh, go on our website. We'll open registration in, in the fall. But um, yeah, yeah I, I
0: feel like we didn't even get to talk about enough. I so. know. I know. Well, thank, hey, thank you for the work that you're doing, for the questions that this book is going to just elicit, the conversations that it'll bring forth, and, and your work at Calvin, just in, yeah. in uh, helping this this generation sort through the difficult things of God and faith. So I appreciate you.
1: Back at you. Really enjoyed talking to you today.
0: Well, my hope is that as you listen to Jennifer, you are able to see how some of the stories you've been telling yourself have shaped the way you behave and the choices you make. As believers, we have to hold the narratives we believe up against scripture and adjust them so that they align with God's biblical truth. If you like to look into Jennifer's book, Nourishing Narratives, we've linked to that in the show notes. We've also included the link to a festival of faith and writing where Jennifer will be speaking. So you can find out more information about that at the link in the show notes as well. Well, friend, that's all I have for you today. And if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast in your podcast app, click the follow button on the show page and make sure you hit the bell icon to get notified if you're listening on Spotify. Hey, thanks so much for joining me today. And I'll see you next time on Java with Julie.